Good morning, everyone. What a wonderful day to sleep in, and you came to church anyway. Oh, congratulations. You are here. Uh, if you're new to our church, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here, and we've been on a series focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We have been focusing on the words of Jesus, focusing on the Sermon on the Mount, where we last left off. Last week, we celebrated Pentecost Sunday, and when we last left off, we were talking about uh, Jesus uh, referring to murder and anger in our heart. Uh, today, we're going to talk about adultery and lust. And so um, uh, let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And uh, I, I think last week was Pentecost Sunday. It was a good time because some of these topics are, are going to take the power of the Holy Spirit to free us and liberate us into the people who God has made us to be. And so Matthew 5, we'll get there in a moment. Let's pray. Let's invite the Spirit of God to speak to us, to open our hearts, our minds, our ears, that we would he would pour out every gift he has for us this day. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence in this place, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I ask that you would speak very powerfully through me and you would give us ears to hear what we need to hear today, Lord. And Lord, may we walk out of this building different than the way we walked in. May we experience your grace and your power and your love and your truth. And so we offer this time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. There was a day last week when I was sound asleep, uh, probably on my third or fourth dream or so. And out of nowhere, there was a bright light that came in our room. And um, I began to hear... Music as well, and the sounds of just beautiful heavenly music. And I thought I, I died and went to heaven for a moment. Turns out that my wife turned on the TV and she was watching the royal wedding. Um, and <laughs> I woke up. I said, "What is this?" She said, "Shut up! This is we're watching this now." And so. Um, Five o'clock in the morning or so, it was like the pre-game, like the pre-wedding thing, I don't know, and she was watching it, and seven o'clock or so, I got up, and I was watching it with her, totally engrossed in the message, engrossed in the culture of it all, and captivated by it all, and it wasn't just me, it was 29 million other people who were watching this wedding, not including the folks who were probably watching it online as well, and there was so much attention for this royal wedding, and the question is, why? Why was there so much attention around the world? of two folks getting married. And as I was watching on Twitter and reading on Twitter, there was a woman named Sister Miriam James, who I think captured it pretty well. And this is what she says. She says, why does the human heart love a good royal wedding? Because our deepest desire is to be presented pure, holy, and spotless before the one who will eternally love us in unending, intimate communion. And I love that. That our marriages and our love for one another points to a deeper reality, a deeper longing, something inside of our souls that we really long for, that only God can truly satisfy. And in that moment, last week, the the world was caught up in it. Love was in the air. Something was powerfully present. And the royal wedding, and every wedding for that matter, reminds us of the divine gift of covenant love. That when it is free and total and faithful and fruitful, it pulls us into God's divine love. It pulls us into God's divine reality. And we regularly need a a vision of relationships, a vision of marriage, a vision of singleness, uh, of God's passionate love for the world. And so what we saw was kind of an icon, that is, a window into another reality. And that new life, paying attention to our marriages, paying attention to our singleness, paying attention to our sexuality is very important for us. This is why our fourth value, our fourth M, is that we're married to Christ, that our marriages, our singleness, our sexuality flows out of our marriage to Christ, that our union to God is to impact every relationship we find ourselves in. And if there is one thing for, is for certain in our culture, it is this. Although we long for union with God and union with one another, we often choose the way of using. Instead of union, we choose the way of using. And the way of using others is something that humanity has struggled from the very beginning. 
especially as it pertains to relationships, sexual relationships, one to another. There's a famous story that kind of is the paradigmatic story of this in the Old Testament. It's a story of King David, where one day King David was at home. He didn't go out to battle with the rest of his troops. And as he looks out from the balcony, he sees a woman who is bathing outside. Her name was Bathsheba. And he looks down and he was attracted to her. And beyond just being attracted to her, he wanted to have relationship with her, sexual relationships with her. So he calls her. He has her come into his chambers. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And after she gets pregnant, he realizes the folly of his ways. He realizes what he has done. And he calls his general, a guy by the name Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband. And what he wanted to do was get Uriah to come home, get him drunk, so that he would go and have a sexual intimacy with his wife, so that she would get pregnant and make it seem like it was him and not David. And so he gets Uriah here and he says, Uriah, you know, you've been fighting. Why don't you go with your wife? And Uriah says, no, 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 no. How could I make love to my wife when my, my soldiers are out fighting? And he does not go in. David tries to get him drunk. Uriah refuses to do it. David realizes I have to do something here to cover my sin. I have to do something here to cover my folly. And so he has Uriah go out into the front of battle, and he tells the rest of his troops, as you proceed, there's going to be a moment where you back up, and Uriah is going to be killed by the other enemy, by the enemy. And so that, what, that's exactly what happens. Uriah is killed in battle. And David goes, whew, that was a close one. But God saw what happened. And God sends a man named Nathan, a prophet, to David. And he says, Nathan, I, w- I want you to give a specific message to David. And I want you to say it in the form of a story. And so Nathan comes to King David. He confronts him and confronts him by telling a story. He says, King, there was two men in a certain town. There was one who was rich. There was another who was poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep and cattle. The poor man had one little sheep. The kids played with this one little sheep. At moments, this one little sheep would, would, would sleep in their arms as they went to bed. Whenever there, was, whenever there was a birthday party, they put a little birthday hat on the little sheep there. That's not in the Bible. I just made that one up there. And so they, David's going, I'm listening, I'm listening. And, and, and Nathan says, one day there was a rich man, the man who had a lot of sheep and cattle. He came and took that one man's little sheep. He ended up killing the sheep and, 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 and giving it to his own guest. And as David is hearing this, his blood begins to boil. As David is hearing about the story of this one rich man with many sheep and cattle taking this poor man's one little sheep, David begins, his, his blood begins to boil. And David says, he's enraged. He goes, who is this man? This man must die. And at that moment, Nathan gives one of the best kind of lines in the Bible. He says, you the man. <laughs> you the man. You, David, you are the man. And at that moment, David sees exactly what he's done. The story is told in a way that David could truly understand. David repents. David writes Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance, a psalm of confession. David is broken by this whole thing. And it actually becomes, uh, uh, David, uh, pain continues to come in David's life as a result of this decision that he made. When Jesus talks about adultery and lust in the, in the gospel of Matthew here, he's trying to get at the core of something that fractures relationships. And it's something that we really need to pay close attention to no matter who you are in this room or watching online. This is what the word of the Lord says. Jesus is up to the point of this a part of his sermon. He's talked about anger. He's talked about salt and light. Now he talks about marriage and sexuality and the way we see one another. This is what he says. He says, you have heard it, it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body into hell. I want to teach my way through this passage because there's a lot of nuances here. 
And so I want to just, I want to break this passage apart, and I'm going to give you six important truths of this passage. Uh, and I want you to stay with me here, because it's going to get a little heavy from time to time, but I want you to hold on to six important things that Jesus says, or Jesus alludes to in this part of his sermon. The first thing I want you to hold on to when you talk about adultery and lust is, number one, that God is deeply pained when we betray one another. God is deeply pained when we betray one another. If you notice, Jesus doesn't do away with the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you don't like somebody, feel free to insult them behind their back. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say about adultery. He doesn't say, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you can't control yourself, go ahead with it. He doesn't say that because Jesus doesn't contradict the Ten Commandments. Jesus is not here to do away with the Ten Commandments. He's trying to show us what it truly looks like to live the Ten Commandments from the deepest place of our hearts. And so another way to see this is it's helpful to look at the Ten Commandments with a positive perspective. It's not just don't do this, don't do that. There's a positive aspect we are to cultivate as well. And Jesus is saying in his kingdom... If you belong to Jesus, he's saying, our lives are to be marked by faithful love. Now, when God says, don't commit murder, he's saying, treat others with care and dignity. When God says, don't covet, the positive perspective on it is, live with gratitude and contentment, seeing all of life as a gift. And when Jesus says, don't commit adultery, and when God says, don't commit adultery, he's saying, let your relationships be characterized and marked by faithful covenant love. And this commandment flows from the heart of God. And so whether someone betrays or is betrayed, God is deeply grieved by it as well. Because God's intention for the world is that we would treat each other as people made in the image of God. And so whenever someone is betrayed, it's like God is betrayed. His heart is wounded. His heart is, is marked here. And so the first thing you need to know is that God is deeply pained when we betray one another. But Jesus goes on to address the deeper reality of this adultery, and he locates the deeper root of it, and the deeper root of it is lust. And Jesus goes on to call us, secondly, to confront our lust. You can't read this passage without Jesus very specifically calling us and confronting us and dealing with our lust. And on a similar way, like the prophet Nathan came to David, Jesus comes to us as well and confronts each of us. He quotes the seventh commandment, which says you shouldn't commit adultery, but he knows that the people who are listening to him back then and the people who are probably listening to me right now will say, well, I've never done that. I've never slept with another person's spouse. I haven't cheated on my spouse. Some might say, well, I'm not even married. How can I commit adultery? I've never even had sexual relationships with another. How can I commit adultery? But then Jesus says, but I tell you. And whenever you hear Jesus say, but I tell you, it's like pay close Attention. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And Jesus goes beneath the surface and reveals the original intent of God's commandment. And he says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery. And here Jesus reminds us that, again, that to belong to him and to live in his kingdom means that our desires, our thoughts, our intentions are to be shaped by his love. That we can be outwardly faithful to our spouse and yet God sees our hearts. A helpful way to see lust is the same way we talked about anger a couple of weeks ago. That the word that Jesus uses for anger is the word orgazomenos. And remember, that word orgazomenos doesn't mean uh, uh, to get angry. It, it's a present tense, continual word. And so when Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you, if anyone is angry, you have already committed murder on your heart. He's not saying someone who gets angry from time to time or from one moment to the next. That word orgazomenos means whoever is carrying anger, remaining angry, whoever is nursing a grudge. It's a present tense word. You are harboring it. You are holding on to it. And the same way applies to this word lust. 
When Jesus talks about lust, he's not talking about a passing attraction. But as, as a New Testament theologian, Craig Keener says, the deliberate harboring of desire for an illicit relationship. And, and, and the Greek word, anger was kind of like resentment. The, the word lust there in the Greek word is the, it's not passing attraction, a glance there. It's staring. That's the word. It's a stare. It's a stare for the purpose of consumption. And so we, we have been shaped by our society not to have communion and union with other people. We've been shaped by our society to consume and use other people. And that's the word probably that Jesus is trying to get at most here. It's the word using. The reality is we live in a society where using is the norm. And we've been shaped in our society, especially men, to believe that our desires must be met however we decide and with whomever we decide and whenever we decide. And we are being discipled more and more into a culture that uses others. And to use others is essentially to avoid real relationships, which is why Richard War says these words. He says, to commit adultery in the heart is to try to make another person an object for your consumption. And here is the true sin of it all. When we think about sexual sin, we think of it as bad, especially religious people and Christian people think it's bad, because we're often embarrassed or ashamed by the act in itself. But what we often don't see with sexual sin that Jesus wants us to see is that lust is about how we use others as objects for our gratification. And in this respect, people are not seen as people. People are seen as tools. And so we are diminishing the image of God in another person, which is why Richard Ward would say, we live in a fantasy world, and what happens is the real sin of lust is this, creating relationships in your head. That's the real sin of lust, the creation of relationships in your head. And this is a very prevalent and dangerous reality in our day. And when you see the impact of pornography in our culture, we are formed to create imaginary relationships that impact our ability to have genuine connection with another human being. And when you look at the overwhelming statistics of pornography, we see how could it be any other way in our society? We are discipled to use one another. Look at these statistics here. Porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. 35% of all internet downloads are pornography-related. 34% of internet users have been exposed to unwanted porn via ads, pop-ups, etc. People who admit to having extramarital affairs were over 300% more likely to uh, admit consuming porn than those who had never had an affair, according to a 2004 study in Social Science Quarterly. At least 30% of all data transferred across the internet is porn-related. This is the sad reality of our lives. And it gets even more complicated as technology advances. I read an article that was published in the Journal of Sexual and Relationship Therapy in which ethics researchers at a university in Canada said that we're heading for the day and we might already be here at this day where some will prefer to have loving relationships, quote-unquote, loving relationships with robots instead of humans. And this is what uh, one of the university's uh, directors said about it. He said, it is safe to say that the era of immersive virtual sex has arrived. As these technologies advance, their adoption will grow and many people will come to identify themselves as digisexuals, people whose primary sexual identity comes through the use of technology. Many people will find that their experiences with this technology become integral to their sexual identity and some will prefer them to direct sexual interactions with humans. Now certainly, our world is different than Jesus' world but the same human impulse remains. That is the temptation to use for the sake of our own gratification is very deep. And so when Jesus uses the word lust, he's, he's saying 
the, the source of the problem is not just something dirty out there. It's the source of the problem is our refusal to love others well. Our refusal, our, 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 the exchange of communion to consumption, the exchange of union to using. And Jesus is saying the way we love one another is not by using them and consuming them. The way we love one another is by having union with them, proper union with them. And so whenever, let me say it this way, whenever consumption replaces communion, our souls are corrupted. Whenever consumption replaces communion, our souls are corrupted. That's the second thing I want to share, that Jesus gets to the root of the problem and calls us to confront our lust. The third thing I want to show you out of this passage is that Jesus talks primarily to men. He talks primarily to men in this passage. Not exclusively, you could argue, but primarily. He talks primarily to men. Now, this was quite a thing that for Jesus to do. He, say, he, he says very specifically, if a man lusts after a woman, he has committed adultery in his heart. And when you see Jesus over and over in the Gospels, you see how provocative and how controversial Jesus was because he typically and constantly challenged the male-dominant society he lived in. And so Jesus would receive women to be his disciples. He would speak to a Samaritan woman at the well, which was a socially questionable thing to do. He regularly empowered and affirmed the dignity of women. And in this passage, he speaks primarily to men. Because for thousands of years, women have been seen as objects and property for man's satisfaction. And women have often been blamed for male lust. The Pharisees of Jesus, they believed that the key to eliminating male lust was to avoid all contact with women, even if it meant walking into a wall with one eye's closed rather than looking at a woman. And so rather than taking responsibility for one's own actions, the Pharisees assumed that for men, the problem of lust lies within women. And so women have been blamed for male lust. And what Jesus is saying is, no, the root of lust is within the heart. And us men need to take ownership of what's coming out of our hearts. Because Jesus very clearly tells us that, that, the, that, that the, the primary way lust is dealt with is not out there, it's in here. And when that's not the case, women are blamed. Women are scapegoated. We say, well, if she wasn't wearing that outfit, I would not have lusted after her. But let's be honest. If a man has lust in his heart, it doesn't matter what she's wearing. She could be clothed from a head Two toe, just her eyebrows showing. And if you have lust in your heart, you're going to say, look at those eyebrows right there. And so Jesus is saying the issue is not out there. The issue is in here. Now, I want you to know that Jesus speaks primarily to men. And it's important that he speaks primarily to men because... Uh, Men are to be training our young sons and young men well in this area. In a society that disciples our sons and disciples our young men to use and consume women without having communion and union with women. We are, are, are men. The task for us, when I look at my three-year-old son, Nathan, the task for me is to disciple him well in this area. And how does he engage with women? How does he relate to women? And for some of the men in the room who are bound by some kind of addiction or what have you might say, I've been dealing, you don't, do you know how long I've been dealing with this? And the good news is no matter how long you've been in bondage, God's power can liberate you. God can set you free. We believe in the God of the impossible. And so you might have been in addictive behavior since the time you were 10 and 11 and 12 years old. And you might be in your 30s and 40s and 50s. And yet God can liberate you. God can set you free. Now, it's important to know that Jesus speaks primarily to men, but he doesn't speak, you could argue, exclusively to men. And I want you to hold on to that as well because women are increasingly becoming addicted to pornography. Whether it is fantasy novels, 
And so this is a very real danger for women as well, that, that, that women can see another as an object for their own emotional or physical desires to be met. And whenever that's the case as well, a woman is in danger as well. But Jesus speaks primarily to men in this passage. Number four. It's important to note in this verse that when Jesus talks about lust and adultery, that this verse is not about being less sexual. This verse is not about being less sexual. Many people read this verse and conclude that the only way to respond is to be less sexual, to repress your sexual desires. And that's not the conclusion we are to come to. Now, as Christians, we we are often embarrassed by our sexual desires. And yet God gave us sexual desires. And so to be sexual is not the opposite of being holy. And it's important to just sit with that for a second. To be sexual is not the opposite of being holy. That one can be robustly sexual, and radically holy at the same time, that the two are not polar opposites against each other. Now, the the, the classic problem with the way many interpret this passage is we begin to see every desire for sex as lust. And so let me help you nuance this a little bit. It's not the case. Listen, it's not lust if you find someone attractive. It's not lust if you think someone is good-looking. It's not lust if you have a desire to have sex. It's not lust if, you, uh, if, if, you, if someone is sexually aroused without any conscious decision to be so. It's not lust if you experience sexual temptation. All of these things are called being human. That's called being a human being. And so what happens is, it's important to say that because many people, particularly Christians, live with extreme shame about our sexuality and our paranoia becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so for many people who have a shame-based theology of sexuality, the goal is to not think about sexual desire. But ironically, the more you try not to think about it, the more you think about it. Don't think about it, don't think about it, don't think about it, don't think about it, don't think about it. The more you're thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so, and so listen, let me say it this way. The love of God does not remove our desires. It reorders our desires. The love of God does not remove our desires. The love of God reorders our desires. Now, for the most part, the church has not done well helping people make sense of their desires. And as a result, there are two primary ways that people have chosen to see their desires, one in the church and one in the world. Christopher West has effectively named this, and it's important that I repeat this again. He says there's three diets of desire that we often live according to. And often the church chooses the first, the world chooses the second, and yet God offers us the third. The world chooses, the church chooses often what he calls the starvation diet. And this diet describes a large portion of the church. And it's a diet that says that your longings and your desires, especially your sexual longings and desires, are bad. That passion is bad. And this kind of theology permeates our churches so much that even to talk about desire, to talk about sex, longing, eros, is done in whispers. And some of you right now, you might be feeling uncomfortable. Why are we talking about sex like this on a Sunday morning? Why are we talking about desire like this? I want you to pay attention to your body for a moment. That if you've been squirming and, oh, like he's talking, he said that word here, oh, in church, oh, I'm next to my mother, oh, what is this about? Oh, my goodness. The, the world has no problem discipling us in this area. And if, and if the church has a problem with discipling us in this area, it shows that we have a bad theology. 
Because sooner or later, you're going to be discipled somewhere. Why not be in the house of God <laughs> with some good theology here? <laughs> Unfortunately, the, world, the, the church lives according to a starvation diet, which flows out of theological distortions that says that the spirit is good, but the body is bad. That the soul is good, but pleasure is bad. And so what happens is we, we suppress our desires. We're not honest about the longings that we have. We feel guilty about having desires. But what begins to happen is in order to survive, many in the church end up lying, living secret lives, and ultimately in bondage because we cannot be honest about our sexual desires. And so if I can't be honest with you about it, sooner or later I have to hide and, and talk about it in secret and act out in secret. And next thing you know, I'm in bondage. You ever notice where many of the, the scandals come out in churches? Not all of them, but many of them. It comes out of places where churches do not have a theology of desire, do not have a theology of sexuality that points us ultimately to God. And what begins to happen is people end up acting out in secrets because we've lived according to a starvation diet. Now, the, the church lives according to a starvation diet. The world, Christopher West says, lives according to a fast food diet. And the fast food diet is about immediate gratification through the indulgence of desire. And so it says, the world says, whatever you desire, you have a right to have it met. And the world gives us a message, live for pleasure, do whatever you want. But the fast food diet is the cheap imitation of what God offers us because although you might feel full for a moment, too much fast food makes you sick. You might feel fulfilled in the moment, your tummy is full in the moment, but too much fast food makes you sick. And so we must, as the church, we must question and critique and resist the dominant culture's tendency to live a fast food diet. Why? Because not all of our desires are meant to be fulfilled. The world says, no, whatever desire you have, you deserve to have it filled. But Jesus says, not every desire that you have is meant to be fulfilled. We are invited to another kind of life. Jesus, Christopher West says we are invited to a banquet, not a starvation diet, not a fast food diet. We are invited to a banquet, and the kingdom of God is a banquet. It's a feast of communion with others that leads to a feast of, a feast of communion with God, which leads to a feast of communion with others. The gospel says that all of life is a gift. Music is a gift. Art is a gift. Sexuality is a gift. All of creation is a gift. But all of these gifts are to point us to God. And so the banquet is a recognition that we were created for ecstasy, but that ecstasy would only be met and found in God. And so God is the starting point of our desire, and God is the end point of our desire. And we are to hold this together, that union with God, relationship with God in Christ, is to shape our longing, shape our desires that we have in the world. And once we taste the love of God, that, that love is to quench our spirituality and shape our sexuality. And so Jesus in this passage is helping us to see that, that, that in lust, something has become twisted. Desire has become twisted and disordered. That there's something good there. You long for communion, but it's been twisted for consumption. You long to know and be known, but it's been twisted to using other people for that purpose. It's been twisted. And to come into the kingdom of God means that those desires that are twisted, Jesus wants to untwist them. He wants to reorder them. He wants to heal them. He wants to reform them. But by no means does this mean we have to be less sexual. Number five. Jesus, and I have six for us, so we're, we're, we're almost done here. Jesus doesn't just say the verse is not about being less sexual, really, but, but the fifth thing I want you to see is that Jesus gives dramatic language to deal with lust. Dramatic. In verse 29, he offers strong words. This is what he says. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than 
for your whole body to go into hell. And so for the problem of, for the problem of lust, Jesus doesn't advise us to use Band-Aids. He commands amputations. He doesn't say a little Band-Aid here and there will fix this. He commands amputations. He tells us to take decisive action against the habit, against the thing, against the person that might seem harmless, but in fact is ruining our lives. And there's a few ways that people have interpreted this verse, but, but, I, but I want to give you what I believe is Jesus' intent for the verse. In telling us to gouge out our eye or cut off our hand, he's not recommending literal amputation. And the church said amen. <laughs> amen for that. He's using extreme language to get at the danger that is present here. He's saying, you think it's the little thing here? But I'm telling you, this is much more dangerous than you. He's saying, you think the little flirting here and there is just, nah, it's just a little bit of flirting here and there. He's, I'm telling you, this is much more dangerous than you think. And so the right eye, it might refer to something visual that's leading someone to lust. And so whether it's a book you read or a place you go or a relationship that you're just having right here on the side, Jesus doesn't say. But, but he's saying that the loss of an eye or a hand is better than the loss of one's whole life. It's almost like Jesus is saying, is that book worth your entire life? Is that website worth your entire life? Is that relationship worth your entire life? He says, it's not worth your entire life. It's corrupting your entire life. As a result, he says, cut it off. The relationship that's here, you're married and there's a little relationship here and, and you're flirting here and there. He, cut it off, he's saying. The thing that, you, you know, it, 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 every now and then you get into something here and, and, it, and, and it appeals to your desire. Jesus doesn't say use a Band-Aid. He says you need an amputation. Why? Because he knows the ways that we corrupt our souls and the ways our relationships with others are corrupted and our relationships with God are corrupted. And so it's almost Jesus is saying it would be better to go into life in the kingdom of heaven with some of your desires unfulfilled than to go to hell with all of our desires met. Now, hold on to this. This is, why, this is why Pentecost Sunday was last week. And I said, we need the Holy Spirit. I knew what was coming. You didn't know what was coming. I knew what was coming here. He's, it would be better to get into the kingdom of heaven with some of our desires unfulfilled than to go into hell with all your desires fulfilled. This is the word of our Lord here. Jesus, another Dale Bruner says, it is infinitely better to go limping into heaven than to go leaping into hell. <laughs> Amen. I got one more for you. I had nine points. I said, this is going to be too long. Let me just give you six here. Right? I didn't give you six. The last thing I want to show you is that our lust damages our lives, our relationships in the world. And yet, God still loves us. God still loves us. And God still, still pursues us. And God still pours out mercy. The, the reason Jesus talks so directly about adultery and lust is because he knows the damage and the heartache and the pain that comes from using other people. The damage it does to our own souls and the damage it does to others. And so when you look at the opening pages of the Bible, you could argue that when sin entered into the world and relationships with God and with others were damaged, it was because of lust. In the Garden of Eden, God tells Adam and Eve, he says, listen, you can enjoy any tree you want, whatever you want. Don't touch that one. They say, we want that one. And soon after, the serpent comes and Adam and Eve begin to look at the tree lustfully. They see the tree as a means to an end. They want to use the tree, God, and they take it and sin enters into the world. And what comes in the world is shame and guilt and fear. 
This past week, um, one of our New Life artists depicted a, a, a painting of sin and the impact it has in our lives. It was my father-in-law, Jeff D. And I was able to talk to him about it. And, and he captured, I think, a, a powerful image of what happens when our lives are marked by lust and what it does to our relationships. I just want you to hold, take in this image for a second here. Where the object of lust is right in the center there. And Adam and Eve are covering themselves in shame unable to face one another, hiding from God. And this is a picture of many of our lives, living under the burden of shame and guilt and bondage. And yet my father-in-law was asking him, hey, what, take me through, what do, you, what, what do you see here? Show me what you're, what you're intending. And he says, I wanted to put that light up there, that image of light, because although there's sin and shame, and fragmentation there, God consistently moves towards us with his light and his love. That God pursues us with his light and with, with his love. Not to condemn us and banish us, but to heal us and restore us. And God's presence is consistently coming to us. And so the gospel is for those who have been sinned against, and the gospel is for those who have sinned. And maybe you've been sinned against sexually, the gospel offers us healing and freedom. And maybe you've sinned against others and object, objectified others and used others. And yet God says there's a way of freedom for you so that your heart can be cleansed. And yet it all begins with how Jesus began the sermon, saying to us that unless we are poor in spirit, we have no prayer to live this thing out. And so I want to close us with just a prayer of confession. And when we confess together, what we're saying is, it's not just one or two of us in this room that struggles from time to time. We are all in some way, in some form, tempted to use other people for our physical, for our emotional, for our sexual desires. And we're all in the same boat, brothers and sisters. And yet God comes to us with his loving kindness his grace and mercy. Then I invite you to close your eyes for a moment, and then we'll pray this prayer of confession. Let me have the worship team come forward. And I wonder today if you can hear God's voice speaking to you. I wonder today what's the eye that needs to be gouged out? What's the arm that needs to be cut off? What's the heart transformation that God wants to do in you? Maybe you can just offer that to the Lord so that his love would wash over you and free you, make you whole. Just right where you're at, just offer, Lord, this is, this is Lord, this is what's getting in the way right now. This is how I've been shaped and discipled, and I, Lord, I just need, I need help. And when we open ourselves up to that simple reality that we need help, God becomes a very present help in time of trouble. Lord Jesus, Lord, we need your grace, your power, your love to be the people you've called us to be. And so come Holy Spirit, wash over us, empower us, convict us, lead us to everlasting life. Pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said. Let's all stand together and let's pray this prayer of confession and then we'll sing together. And then when we, when we pray this prayer of confession for together, what we're saying is we're in the same boat. We need the same God. We need the same mercy. We need the same grace. And that's one of the good things of just confessing out prayers together. Let's pray this together. God of all mercy, we confess that we have sinned against you 
opposing your will in our lives. We have denied your goodness in each other, in ourselves, and in the world you have created. We repent of the evil that enslaves us, the evil we have done, and the evil done on our behalf. Forgive, restore, and strengthen us through our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we may abide in your love and serve only your will. Amen. Let's sing together. have those offering communion come to my right have the prayer team come to my left I want to offer just a couple of quick next steps for some of you in this room um, if you can just put my Roy put my sermon back up there just the last part um, some of you might wonder where do we go from here what do I do from here um, and I want to just offer a couple of ways forward for us just four simple next steps for some of you in this room um, you've been battling addictions and battling struggles for maybe a long time but you've never chosen the route of of counseling, of someone to help you to make sense of where you're at right now and help you get out of it. And so on our website, um, there's a list of counselors there. It says newlife.nyc slash counseling. And we believe in counseling as a spiritual formation practice at New Life. It's important for our souls, other people who are skilled in this area to help us get untangled. And so whether it's counseling, whether it's meeting with one of our pastors here, the next step might be just to reach out to someone uh, and take that next step. We have a healing, inner healing and deliverance ministry. And there are people that you're caught in strongholds of the evil one. And it's more than just a bad habit. There's just stuff that's really 
there's claws on you. It's just wrapped itself around you. And you just need extended time of ministry, extended time of prayer, extended times of, of waiting on the Holy Spirit with other people to begin to break free from particular bondage areas and strongholds. And so if you go on our website as well, uh, you can just reach out to uh, someone there. Uh, just go to the communities tab there. And, but that might be a next step for you, for someone. You, you've tried by yourself. You've tried more willpower and you found yourself in the same situation. Sometimes you just need someone to have extended time of prayer with you and for you. The third thing is we have a, a Me Too small group for women every other Thursday night. And maybe you've been a, a victim of sexual abuse or there's some things to your life that you just, you need other, you need community, someone to talk some things through with. There's a small group that meets at, at this church here every other Thursday night. And there's a Pure Desire small group for men, uh, for men to walk into sexual wholeness and liberty and freedom. And so if you're saying, yeah, I've been struggling with this area and you just need some other folks to just walk with you in community and pray with you there, you can sign up for all this on our website. And if you look in the bulletin, there's some next steps for you down there as well. But one quick next step is our prayer team is here. And maybe you came in here, you just need God to pray for you. Maybe you've sinned against others. Maybe you've been sinned against others, sinned, sinned against by others. And you need God's healing to flow through your life. And so our prayer team is here. We'll have Walter here to offer you the bread and the cup. So as you take the bread and the cup, we are reminded of Jesus' love towards you and for you. And he is broken and bruised and vulnerable so that he can lead us into wholeness and to freedom and to liberation. And so when you take the bread and the cup, we're saying, Lord, may, I, may my life be marked by your wholeness and by your healing. So as we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. And if you're new to our church, we close every gathering like this because we cannot give what we have not received. And so this is a posture of us just welcoming the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, so that we might be vessels and vehicles to offer that to the world around us. With your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit experiencing the wholeness and healing of Jesus. And may he lead you to see others as gifts and not as objects, as people to experience communion with and not consumption. May God teach us what it means to love our brother and sister as people made in the image of God. I bless you all today, the strong and the beautiful, in the empowering name of Jesus and the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace. Yeah.